Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, my name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and pretty much anywhere where you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, We have a couple of things going on around us. Recently, we are in the midst of summer and right smack in the middle of July, and we are seeing the highest ambient temperatures for the summer season being recorded throughout the country at this time. Multiple areas of the country, including the Pacific Northwest, experiencing a heat wave, ladies and gentlemen, that has led to a number of deaths, unfortunately and other medical emergencies. And so that's what we're going to talk about on this program this evening. But we're also going to update you on a situation with COVID and this Delta variant that is running around before we get into that discussion about heat-related illness. And so as you know, ladies and gentlemen, we have this Delta variant that is out there. It is now the dominant variant Uh, in this country causing COVID-19 infections. And we need to address this, ladies and gentlemen, because it has been shown that this is a likely more transmissible or more contagious variant than even the Alpha variant, right? We all remember the Alpha variant B117 first identified in the UK. And we saw the devastation, the re-implementation of lockdown throughout the country because that variant was actually approximately 50% more transmissible or more contagious than the original SARS-CoV-2 virus or the original virus causing COVID-19. And now we have this Delta variant, B16172. And this is believed to be the most transmissible variant yet, as it has been shown in numerous studies to be approximately 50% more transmissible than that alpha variant. And so we are talking about something that is super contagious, ladies and gentlemen. Right now, it is still being worked out on whether or not this is more virulent or whether it causes more severe disease in any individual that 
is infected with this variant. But one thing I will say is that it's probably not even a question of the virulence right now, because just the fact that it is significantly more contagious, ladies and gentlemen, means that regardless of whether or not it is more virulent, we are going to potentially see more individuals harmed by this virus simply because it has more hosts, more individuals that it is infecting, and therefore a, an increased number potentially of individuals suffering complications from this illness. Now, we've talked about the complications multiple times on this program, and therefore I will not belabor that point. We know there are complications associated with a COVID-19 diagnosis. And when you just think about it, right, think about this being more contagious than the original virus, the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, more contagious than the initial alpha variant and really all the other variants out there at this point. It really doesn't take much to understand or to foreshadow, right, more individuals coming down with this, potentially more complications. And especially when we look at individuals that are unvaccinated, they are at the highest risk of suffering, um, not only being infected by this variant, but also having complications. And just going to talk about a case uh, recently, this was uh, between May 12th and May 18th, 2021, the Oklahoma State Department of Health Acute Disease Service was notified by their public health laboratory about 21 cases of SARS-CoV-2, the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and these were specimens that were clustered in central Oklahoma. Upon investigating, the Department of Health there found that this was associated, this outbreak was associated with a local gymnastics studio. Ultimately, in addition to those 21 laboratory confirmed cases of the Delta variant, there were 26 epidemiologically linked cases. And by epidemiologically linked, we mean essentially these were cases thought to be spread uh, from that initial outbreak in a gymnastic studio, right? These cases were essentially taken home to the families of these individuals and spread it in their families and in their communities. And so it was found that these cases were linked to that outbreak in a gymnastic studio. And overall, the facility and household attack rates were 20 and 53% respectively. When we talk about an attack rate, ladies and gentlemen, it is essentially a measure of incidence. It is a measure of the proportion of individuals in a population who experience um, any sort of acute health event or outcome during a certain period of time, right? And that's calculated by looking at the number of new cases in a particular population divided by the size of that population at the beginning of whatever time interval or time period that one is recording such data. And so again, the attack rates were 20% and 53% in the facility and households, respectively. 40, right, out of these 47 cases, 40, so 85% of the individuals diagnosed with COVID-19 and harboring this Delta variant 
85% of them had never received any COVID-19 vaccine doses. Three, so 6%, had received at least one dose of Moderna or the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine um, more than 14 days right before their positive test result, um, but had not received a second dose. And then there were four individuals, so 9%, that had received two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine or a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine more than 14 days before their positive test result. So essentially, this shows that the B1617 variant is highly infectious, highly transmissible, especially when we talk about indoor sports settings and especially within households, right? Individuals sort of in a closer um, environment, right? In the household um, and even in these sports settings, right? Indoors. Um, yes, this is more transmissible. But one thing that we also see with this is that individuals that are vaccinated do have a little bit more protection from this virus. Now, there is breakthrough. Um, we are definitely seeing that, right, which um, there are some estimates out there of this particular variant rendering the currently available and uh, emergently approved vaccines, right, uh, making them approximately 30% less effective. Um, that is still something that is being worked out, but there is some degree of protection for individuals that are vaccinated. And so we definitely want to get that out there. Now, one thing, right, um, unfortunately, there are fears, right, that there might be, because of this discrepancy in vaccination rates, there might be small pockets, small outbreaks in communities with low vaccination rates. Um, and so those communities are more vulnerable to this disease, more vulnerable to this variant, and therefore more likely to have complications related to this. One thing I will say, too, is that individuals that are vaccinated, we are not off the hook, ladies and gentlemen, and we still must do things to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities. And that includes right? Masking up. That in includes sort of um, imposing some measures to protect yourself and stop the spread of this illness. So social distancing, right? Especially um, indoors, limiting large gatherings. Um, when you are going to a large gathering, even outdoors, wearing a mask, hand hygiene, pretty much everything that we've talked about up to this point on health in Harlem, all of that stuff, we need to take that into account as this variant begins to emerge as the, you know, supremely dominant form of SARS-CoV-2 that is out there. It is highly infectious. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, there is still some danger. We are definitely in a better place than where we were, you know, just a, a year ago um, around this time in the summer. But there's still some, some things that we need to uh, deal with regarding this disease and we really need to safeguard ourselves and not let our guard down at this time. And essentially that translates to getting vaccinated if you are not vaccinated and protecting ourselves, right? If we are vaccinated, we still need to exercise caution. And so let's talk about the heat, ladies and gentlemen, as we are at the height of summer. And according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, this year's weather, if it is statistically, quote unquote, normal, 
most locations in the contiguous United States will experience their experience their hottest day of the year between July 15th and July 31st. And for another significant part of the country, for instance, Alaska, most of Alaska, the hottest day has for the most part passed, but we still have a lot of hot days potentially coming up, whether it's in the continental United States or stuff that is off the mainland. We still have some hot days. And with that said, there is still a chance of individuals suffering from heat related illnesses. And so that's why we got to get into this topic so that we can really have the best information available to ourselves. We want to empower our listeners of Health in Harlem so that we can, one, prevent this right from happening. Um, theoretically, no one has to suffer from a heat-related illness or heat-related complication. And that is because heat-related illnesses are largely preventable. So that's what we're going to do. We are going to talk about heat-related illness, risk factors, some epidemiology. Um, We're even going to talk about some physiology, ladies and gentlemen, so that we can give you the best information that you need to protect yourself during this summer season. And so I like to start off this topic by just talking about our amazing, I mean, amazing bodies, right? We are homeostatic creatures. That means that we sort of like an ideal uh, environment, right, for our body to function. And our body will do many things to make sure that we stay in a realm where our bodies can function optimally uh, from a physiologic standpoint. We must also acknowledge that we are creatures of the environment, right? So there are um, extrinsic factors that can alter our body temperature. And especially when we talk about things like the ambient temperature, right? So the temperature of the environment we're in, even certain changes within that environment can actually make it feel hotter or cooler, depending on what is happening uh, around us. And one thing that has been sort of noted with all of this that we've been seeing as far as this extreme heat, especially what's happening in the Pacific Northwest, is that this could be related to climate change, right? And so when we talk about this being prepared for heat emergencies, heat-related illness, right, this intense heat, this is something that we might be dealing with all over the country for a long time to come. And so with that said, let's talk about our bodies in relation to our environment. There is a constant exchange of energy that is taking place. And this is especially the case with heat energy. And this actually takes place through four mechanisms, one being conduction. So that is the transfer of heat to a cooler object through direct contact, right? So if we touch, let's say, a cool rock in the shade, then our heat energy is transferred to that cooler rock. And we actually feel that, right? And that touching that cool rock, our body temperature will actually decrease because of that transfer of heat energy from our warmer bodies to that cooler rock. There is also transfer of heat through convection, which is the transfer of heat at the body surface by air circulation. 
We then have radiation, which occurs through the transmission of electromagnetic waves. And then finally, there's evaporation, which essentially cools the skin surfaces when sweat changes from a liquid to a vapor. So literally that evaporation, that water that is turning from a liquid to a gaseous form or into a vapor, right? That is what we call an exothermic reaction. And our bodies are actually cooled as a result of that. And so this is where the really fascinating part comes in because, right, as homeostatic beings, there is an ideal body temperature at which we operate. There's an ideal fluid status or hydration level at which our bodies operate. And our body actually has ways of regulating our body temperature, right? That 98.6, give or take a couple of degrees, is where our body sort of functions the best. Everything from our metabolic processes at the cellular level, right, to even what we feel physically. Um, This is sort of that ideal temperature range that our bodies must maintain. And so starting from the top, we have a number of ways in which this is done. We have our hypothalamus, which is an organ in the brain that actually functions a lot in regulating our body temperature. Um, It has a number of hormones that are released throughout the body, affecting everything from our behavior. So for instance, a very hot day, right? We sense that heat on our skin. Our hypothalamus tells us, hey, it is hot out here. I need to seek shade, right? I need to jump in a pool. I need to calm myself down and maybe not exert myself because of the higher temperatures in order right, to regulate our body temperature, to keep it in that nice tight range, 98.6, give or take a couple of degrees. It also leads to changes in our blood flow, right? We have vasodilation in which the blood vessels sort of open up a little bit in order to release heat. We see increases in our heart rate, our blood pressure. Our body can circulate two to four times as much blood each minute as it does on a cool day, right? And when temperatures soar, uh, we can actually see heart rates go up significantly and that cardiac output increase significantly in response to that high temperature around us. Also, what we see is a shunting of blood from our visceral organs out to our periphery, right? So everything to get that blood from our core and out to our extremities, out to our head so that we can try to release this heat energy. With sweating being pretty much the primary mechanism for heat dissipation, we actually see changes, right, in our fluid status. And so going back to, right, that evaporation, cooling our skin, as we see water turning into water vapor, right, evaporating from our skin, we see that sort of decrease in our body temperature resulting from that. Well, guess what? That's water that is leaving our bodies. And so we have to replace that. And so we engage that thirst mechanism, right? So on a hot day, you searching for a cool beverage to hydrate yourself, that is a natural response to high temperatures and an increase in body temperature. And the whole purpose of that is so that we can, again, tightly regulate Our body temperature. So, all of these changes taking place throughout the body, um, day in, day out, second to second variations that essentially keep us in that nice, tight body temperature range. 
Now, this is great, right? That is the fascinating thing about the human body, just how this happens seamlessly without thinking about it 24-7, 365. This is taking place um, while we go about our busy, right, frantic lives. But there is a point where the body can be overwhelmed, essentially, where some of these mechanisms, as effective as they are at keeping us in that nice, tight temperature range, right, these mechanisms can fail. They can be overwhelmed. And so with that said, there are risk factors that can set us up or increase the likelihood that we suffer from heat-related illnesses. And so I like to start with some of the things, right, that um, we can't control, unfortunately. There are some environmental factors that we really just can't control ourselves, but that can definitely set us up for having problems uh, when, when it's really hot out. And so some of those environmental factors uh, include the absence of adequate breaks, right? So especially when we talk about some of the populations that are more prone to having complications from heat-related illness, um, individuals that are working outdoors, individuals that are in the military, right? So they're out there, a lot of heavy equipment and engaging in strenuous activity. We talk about athletes that are training um, and it's really hot outside. Uh, these individuals are more susceptible to having some of the illnesses that we are going to uh, get into. And we talk about the absence of shelter or shade. Uh, I've been running a lot, as you probably all know, uh, if you've been listening to Health in Harlem for some time. And so down here in Georgia, it is hot, <laughs> like unbelievably hot. And I've gone out this summer a few times in the midday. And even at 80, you know, 80, 85 degrees, I'm like scorched out there running. And the one thing that I've noticed on a lot of the routes that I take is that there's no shade, right? So I'm running out there, there's no shade, um, no shelter, really, and I'm out there exerting myself. And that right there, you know, can be risky, right? I can, I have an increased chance of having um, the onset of one of these uh, problems related to an increase in body temperature. Next, we have high humidity. Uh, so humidity, right? We think about perspiration and sweating being one of the primary mechanisms by which we sort of regulate our body temperature and cool our bodies to stay in that nice tight range. Well, humidity, the sweat that our body produces cannot evaporate. We cannot have that exothermic reaction that allows our bodies to cool itself. And so that mechanism of heat regulation, uh, thermal regulation is compromised, right? The higher the humidity out there, the more likely that we might have one of these complications. And with that said, I just want to take a quick second to talk about the heat index. And so you probably heard the saying, right? It's not the heat, it's the humidity. And essentially the heat index is kind of like an apparent temperature, right? It is the what the temperature feels like to, to the human body, right? To ourselves when we consider the humidity in the environment along with the ambient air temperature. And so let's do a quick thought experiment. We have two places uh, in place A. We have an individual that wakes up in the morning. They look at their forecast. They see that it is 80 degrees Fahrenheit outside with 40% humidity. Well, 
under those circumstances, right, because of that relatively low humidity, it would feel like an 80 degree day for that individual. Now, let's take place B in which the individual wakes up and they hear the weather report is 80 degrees Fahrenheit outside. But let's say it is 90 percent humidity outside. Well, guess what? It's going to feel to that individual it's going to feel six degrees warmer, right? 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And what you see is that as we sort of go up, so with a higher ambient temperature, let's say in place A on another day, that individual wakes up, it's 88 degrees Fahrenheit with a 40% humidity again, it would feel like 88 degree day. Pretty warm day already, right? Waking up, it's 88 degrees in the morning, that's a hot day. But then let's add humidity to that and let's go back to that 95% humidity, well, guess what? Now we're talking about a day that it, where it feels like 117 degrees outside. And so you might ask, hey, well, how do I sort of calculate this, right? How do I figure out this uh, heat index? Well, the work is pretty much done for you. Thankfully, the National Weather Service, they actually have not only uh, information on heat indices, but also they have a heat index calculator. So literally you go to their website, um, you plug in the ambient temperature, you plug in the humidity for that day and the dew point, just a couple of variables that you can get from probably your local weather report. You can even look it up probably on your phone um, to get that data. You plug it in and it tells you sort of what the quote unquote actual feel will be, right? It'll tell you Sort of, hey, this is the temperature, the ambient temperature for the day. It feels like it's 80 degrees, right, as far as that ambient temperature, but it's going to feel like 117 degrees Fahrenheit with a 95% humidity. And so definitely something to check out. And we must be mindful of this because, right, this is why you see some days where there are heat advisories that are put out by agencies like the National Weather Service, right, because we know that the higher that sort of actual temperature or that feel, the higher the heat index, the more likely people are to have difficulty. Um, and we're talking about difficulty, including the heat-related illnesses. So just going back to some other risk factors, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there are indeed uh, intrinsic factors or individual factors that can predispose one to having complications uh, in extreme heat. And so age extremes, right? Individuals that are younger than 15 years of age or older than 65, um, individuals that are deconditioned, right? Or that live a sedentary lifestyle, excessive clothing, inadequate sleep, which <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh God, that's me. Um, lack of acclimatization, and so there are people that, right, let's say if you live in Arizona, a very arid climate, very, very hot in some places uh, in Arizona, well, those people can tolerate higher ambient temperatures, right? Their bodies are used to having a higher set point uh, in their ambient temperature or, near, or their environmental temperature versus more temperate climates such as um, my hometown, New York City, right, where we have a variation of weather throughout the year, um, and especially we have those times of year where it is hot, it is humid, 
And at the beginning of those seasons, right, we are not acclimatized to that. And so, yes, we are more prone to having difficulty or complications related to heat illnesses during that time. But as the summer goes on, as we get used to it being warmer outside, hotter outside, our bodies get used to that um, and adapt. And we are sort of fortified, right? Or have a better chance of maintaining that nice uh, tight temperature range because our body has undergone some changes to make it uh, safer for us. If we look at what has happened recently in the Pacific Northwest, namely Portland, Oregon, uh, we saw complications arise because, right, we're talking about a place where this time of year, the normal midday temperature, right, would be in the 70s um, as far as a high temperature, 70s, 80s. And suddenly you have a day or a few days actually where it was, right, ranging uh, over 110 degrees, the, the hottest day of last week for them was about 100, 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, you have a bunch of people that are not used to that. They are not acclimatized, right? And not used to dealing with high temperatures like that. Well, guess what? You have a population that is at a significantly increased risk from having heat-related illness. And that, that actually saw, we actually saw that happen as there were at least 116 deaths in Oregon and 78 in Washington state related to that heat wave. And so moving on, uh, additional intrinsic or individual risk factors uh, for heat-related illnesses, large muscle mass, male sex, so men are more likely to suffer some of these complications, obesity, and pre-existing dehydration. There are also medical conditions, right? So other intrinsic factors that can predispose one to having difficulty in high temperatures. So individuals with heart disease or any sort of cardiovascular disease, congenital disorders such as ectodermal dysplasia or idiopathic anhydrosis. So these are individuals that can't sweat or they have problems with their skin that make it more difficult to regulate their body temperature. Diabetes, previous heat injury, recent or acute illness, sickle cell trait, and skin abnormalities such as burns, psoriasis, eczema, and even individuals that have had radiation therapy or exposure. Now, other factors uh, that can also uh, impact one's chances of having a heat-related illness uh, include drug and alcohol use. And we're talking about drugs, including prescribed medications. So individuals that are taking Calci calcium channel blockers. So for instance, amlodipine or Norvasc, a commonly used blood pressure medication that can um, sort of blunt the way our body responds in high ambient temperatures or high temperature situations. And it can affect the way that we regulate our body temperature. Individuals that are taking benzodiazepine medications. So individuals taking things like clonopin or clonazepam or Xanax, a.k.a. Alprazolam, they are more prone to having heat-related illness, again, because they can have more difficulty regulating their body temperatures. If taken in excessive amounts, it can alter their behavior, even sedate them, and make them more prone to having a heat-related illness. Diuretics, um, such as um, hydrochlorothiazide, even loop diuretics like furosemide, a.k.a. Lasix, 
Um, there's a whole host of medications, lithium, neuroleptic medications or psychiatric medications, um, thyroid medications. And this is not even talking about the use of recreational substances. So everything from alcohol to amphetamines to opiate and opioid medications um, and even recreational substances can predispose one to having some of these heat-related illnesses. And so without further ado, we actually need to talk about some of the complications resulting from excessive heat exposure. And so they range from mild to severe. And in the mildest sense, we're talking about things such as heat cramps, um, even things such as heat rash. Uh, when we talk about the moderate category, we are talking about um, exercise-associated collapse or heat syncope. We are talking about things like heat exhaustion. And then in the severe category, and this is something that is life-threatening, we're talking about heat, heat stroke. And so we're going to go through those and really just start with some of the milder things because this is, right, the majority of uh, heat-related illness, right? Individuals experience this every day and sometimes don't even know it. And so knowing about it, right, we can then be begin to safeguard ourselves and prevent it. So we'll start with the mild category and talk about heat edema. And essentially edema is sort of a swelling or any sort of inflammatory process, inflammation that can result from many different causes, but it can happen due to heat exposure. And what individuals might typically experience are swelling of the extremities. They can occasionally experience facial flushing. And this is basically uh, the physiologic responses, right? Some of the ways in which our body is trying to dissipate or get rid of this heat energy, we have this cutaneous or in the skin uh, vasodilation. So as we said before, those blood vessels opening up and that can lead to the fluid in our blood vessels sort of coming out and that manifests as this edema, this swelling that we see in the extremities, that we see that facial flushing, that's because those blood vessels are dilating up. And so that's why it has that red appearance. It can be uh, swollen a little bit. And um, that's essentially it. This is a mild thing. Once you remove yourself from the heat, right? So you get from a uh, a place of higher temperature to a place of lower temperature. So it's just getting into the shade. If you do have that swelling in your extremities, elevating your extremities, um, you can actually uh, get rid of this edema and that swelling um, and not need anything as far as medications to do that, such as the diuretics or um, water pills, if you will. And so that brings us to heat cramps, aka exercise-associated muscle cramps. And I've definitely been <laughs> affected by this. I think probably any athlete out there or anybody that works outdoors in the summer months out there in the heat have has probably experienced this in their lifetime. And essentially it's these intense muscle cramps. A lot of times we will get them in their in our lower extremities. Um, you can even get them in the abdominal muscles and it can be very uncomfortable, right? And still trying to be worked out as far as what exactly causes these heat cramps. The previous theory mm -hmm. uh, proposed that dehydration and electrolyte loss sort of led to uh, this yeah. uh, phenomenon, but 
now there is some evidence that yep. neuromuscular control mm -hmm. uh, is responsible for this, where that essentially the muscles are irritated, right, from this high yeah. ambient temperature. Yes. <laughs> you hear Imani here. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Imani <laughs> Selby is present uh, for our conversation. How are you doing, Imani? I'm doing good. You're doing good? I'm glad to hear that, Mama. Um, but yes, there is the theory of sort of loss of neuromuscular control where the muscles are very, very hot, right? They're in an increased metabolic state and they become irritable. And so there is this mm -hmm. loss of neuromuscular control where they begin to be irritated. And just like if you mm -hmm. think of yourself as irritated yeah. <laughs> or when Imani's irritated, right? She gets very cranky and irritable and flexes and uh, grimaces. Well, essentially that is what our muscles are doing um, in this state, or at least that's the thought uh, behind the etiology of these muscle cramps. You can also experience some additional symptoms with this, including moist and cool skin. But this is all in the context of a normal body temperature. And so next in the mild category, we have heat rash or miliaria rubra. And this is basically an, a, a skin rash that can manifest in very high temperature environment. It is basically an eruption of these what we call red little papules or kind of like uh, little bumps. And sometimes they can be even pustules or look like there's a little bit of pus in them. We see them typically or we see this rash typically on the neck, in the upper extremities. Sometimes we see it on the trunk um, and even in the groin. And when you think about it, these are areas that are typically right covered by something. They are either areas that are exposed directly to the sun, right? So taking in all of that heat um, and therefore as a response to all of that heat, we see this rash sort of crop, uh, crop up, um, kind of like an inflammatory response to that excessive heat. But we also see it in places that are not very well ventilated. So hence the, uh, especially in a trunk, right? We're wearing clothing. It is very hot outside, especially if we're wearing very dark clothing and absorbing all of that heat. Well, the trunk can't ventilate itself, can't cool down. And so we have eruption of this rash. Same thing with it being in the groin. And it can be pretty irritable. Sometimes it can itch. Um, in the more severe cases, right, this rash can evolve to actual injury of the skin in which an individual might have what we commonly describe as sunburn. And again, this is a resultant from that vasodilation, right? So remember those blood vessels opening up, trying to get rid of this excessive heat. Um, and with that vasodilation in the skin, the obstructed sweat glands or ducts or pores, however you want to describe them, right? Sweat can get in there. And essentially we have this uh, little bit of inflammation that leads to this characteristic rash. And one thing that uh, we do need to understand about this, too, is that not only can it be very irritating uh, and annoying and even unsightly at times, especially when it shows up um, on our face or in those upper regions of the body, like the neck, um, it can also make you more susceptible to skin infections. And so how do we treat this? Well, again, it is removal from that very high temperature or hot environment. Um, so if you can, removing clothing right, or removing layers, sort of ventilating those areas that are not being as well ventilated. Um, we can also implement evaporative cooling, so getting a spray bottle, spraying your skin so that we can get, take advantage of 
that evaporative cooling uh, mechanism and also avoiding emollients. So topical emollients, lotions, skin softeners, um, uh, whatever, that can also lessen the likelihood of having this complication. Because when you think about it, putting all of that moisturizer and stuff on your skin, you might be compromising your ability to sweat and release that heat because you're just trapping all of that water in and not allowing yourself to take advantage of evaporative cooling. And so let's move on to our moderate severity heat-related illness spectrum. And this includes exercise-associated collapse, aka heat syncope. And so what happens is, right, individuals can uh, suffer lightheadedness, something called orthostasis, where with postural changes, especially when one is rising from a lying position or a seated position to standing, um, they can experience lightheadedness, dizziness. There can even be a transient loss of consciousness, and this typically happens uh, immediately following the cessation of strenuous activity. So um, you can picture an individual sort of working out, right? It's excessively hot outside. They are training um, maybe for, I got a lot of friends actually doing these uh, marathons, you know, like triple marathons and stuff. Um, triathlons, that's what it is. So um, training out here, right? We're talking about these ambient temperatures, 80, 90 degrees. If we talk about the heat index and humidity sort of being added to that, uh, sometimes temperatures feeling like it's 100 degrees outside, right? Well, these individuals are more prone to suffering complications like this, um, where immediately after that activity, they begin to have that lightheadedness. They can even pass out uh, immediately after that. And this too is resultant from some of these mechanisms to dissipate that heat, right? Our body is working as hard as it can to release all of this heat. And that peripheral uh, and even central vasodilation, that opening up of the blood vessels, the volume depletion that can result from this excessive activity um, in very high temperatures um, and, inc and also increased uh, decreased uh, vasomotor tone. So literally, again, that blood pressure dropping because of our blood vessels sort of opening up, this can predispose to all of those symptoms. Um, everything from the lightheadedness and dizziness to one passing out resultant from that. And so the way that we sort of deal with this is uh, if anybody is feeling this way, lightheaded, dizzy, or even uh, have passed out one, they need to rest right in a supine position. So on their back, uh, we can elevate their legs. And then you begin to orally um, rehydrate this individual. If you are in a healthcare setting, intravenous rehydration. So putting in an IV and giving this individual isotonic fluids um, can help with these symptoms. And there is a risk for prolonged recovery. Um, and increased complications or cardiovascular com complications for individuals with heart problems or other underlying medical problems. And really, if this happens to anybody, especially with the passing out, um, we need that individual to be invited. I, I strongly recommend and advise for those individuals to be evaluated in a hospital setting to make sure that they're safe. And we're going to get into that. Um, as to the reasons why. 
But then we also have um, in this moderate category heat exhaustion, and this manifests as thirst. Individuals might experience a headache, um, sort of brain fog, right? That's another descriptor that I hear sometimes when individuals are experiencing heat exhaustion, uh, fatigue. They can also have a fast heart rate and just basically what's described as like a general malaise. They just feel out of it, weak all over. They can be even a little clumsy. Um, they can also pass out as well. And also they can experience nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, and another thing that's noted is that they can also have elevated body temperatures. So this is the, the point where we start to see an elevation in the body temperature that goes above what is considered normal, right? These are the individuals that might even mount what would be described as a fever. Um, and so they can have body temperatures anywhere from 101 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, this is the point where we begin to see this, what we call thermoregulatory dysfunction. Um, we see dehydration in these individuals. We see something called splanchnic vasoconstriction. So again, that shunting of blood from the internal organs to the periphery. Again, this is your body. The way I like to think of this is that this is your body at the point where it can no longer compensate for the heat, right? This is the point where all of the mechanisms we discussed to release that heat energy into the environment to cool our bodies, everything has been maxed out and we start to see decompensation, right? To the point, as we said, they are dehydrated or have uh, aka hypovolemia. They have low blood pressures resultant from this. And we also see a failure, right? What's fully manifest in the failure of these mechanisms is that we see the body temperature beginning to go up. They mount a fever, right? This is heat exhaustion. Um, and this is another category. This is the point where I say, hey, this person needs to be in a hospital environment um, to be uh, evaluated. And so how do we treat this? Well, part of it is getting that person out of that environment as quickly and as safely as possible, having them rest in a supine position. You can also elevate their legs just as you would with um, exercise associated heat collapse or heat syncope. Uh, also, at this point, as quickly as possible, begin to implement evaporative cooling. So just as we did um, for the heat rash and even what we would do for exercise-associated collapse, right? Spraying that individual with a spray bottle, if you can, getting a fan on them, um, or even just waving uh, paper, or if you have something to fan them, um, the faster you do that, you can begin to cool their body. Uh, and then also implementing hydration, so giving them... Uh, fluids, preferably um, water or isotonic fluids by mouth or um, in a hospital environment, right? Getting them intravenous hydration or putting it in an IV and giving them IV fluids. Um, this is how we essentially treat that. And again, these are individuals, right, that ideally should be managed in a hospital environment. And the reason for that is when we begin to talk about the severe category, right? Um, heat stroke. Heat stroke is a medical emergency. Just as one would call 911 for what we describe as a traditional stroke, right? So we've talked about this in the past on Health in Harlem, ischemic strokes or 
a blockage of a blood vessel in the brain that leads to right decreased blood flow to a region of the brain and therefore uh, injury to the cells in that region. We see that manifest as individuals having facial droop. They might have difficulty speaking or understanding speech. They might have weakness on one side of the body versus the other or in a particular limb, right? Um, even if it were a hemorrhagic stroke, so actual bleeding in the brain, we can see a lot of those symptoms. Something went wrong in the brain where an area of the brain is not getting enough blood supply, and we see that manifest as this neurologic dysfunction um, in many different ways. Well, the same thing applies to heat stroke, except that this is a global problem with the brain, right? Because of the high temperatures, the brain is not functioning normally, right? We begin to see evidence of dysfunction in the brain that is manifest as what we describe as altered mental status. That is a pretty broad term. Altered mental status can be the individual that collapses in front of you, right? It can be an individual that is confused and out of it. They are not making sense when they talk to you. They are not saying anything that is coherent. They could be hallucinating. They can have seizures. Whatever it is, right, this is the brain being affected by the increased body temperature. We can even see individuals in a comatose state, right? They are not responding to you at all, whether you pinch them, whether you speak to them or try to arouse them, shaking them, they are not responding to you. They also have tachycardia or an elevated heart rate. They can have a low blood pressure. They can also hyperventilate. Their body, again, is maxed out in its thermoregulatory mechanisms. They are failing. And this is where we begin to see individuals with significantly elevated core body temperatures, right? Greater than or equal to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. This is what we call hyperpyrexia. And essentially, again, this is because the body's uh, ability to cool itself, right? All of those thermoregulatory mechanisms have been maximized. They have been um, maximized to the point where the body cannot compensate anymore and we see a runaway increase in the body temperature. And one thing that is very important, and this is why it is such a dire emergency to get this person urgent, emergent medical attention, is because not only is the brain at risk, but the entire body. Because this is where we begin to see severe thermoregulatory dysfunction. We begin to see something called endotoxin leakage. So our body releasing toxins um, related to a systemic inflammatory response. And this leads to ultimately cellular dysfunction, cellular death, and multi-organ dysfunction and failure. And in the worst case scenario, death. And so these individuals need immediate medical attention, ladies and gentlemen. And so how do we sort of define this again, right? Heat stroke is a problem in the brain. That's how we distinguish this from some of the other heat-related illnesses that we've talked about this at this point. Um, so that confusion, disorientation, seizures, uh, comatose state, these individuals might be suffering heat stroke. They need immediate medical attention. Now, there's different types of heat stroke. Uh, there is something called non-exertional heat stroke, a.k.a. traditional heat stroke. This is typically seen in older individuals. 
And sort of the classic thing with them is that, right, in addition to having this super high body temperature, in addition to them having this altered mental status, they also classically don't sweat, right? So these individuals are dry as a bone. They are confused and out of it. They have a super high body temperature. And then we see something called not uh, exertional heat stroke and exertional street heat stroke, kind of a newer category. Um, still some things to be worked out regarding this condition and its presentation. But one thing that we really need to understand, right, is that sort of the classic descriptor of heat stroke, right? An individual that is bone dry, not sweating, but with a high body temperature and altered mental status, right? It was always thought that, oh, if you're having, if you're sweating, you're not having heat stroke. Well, we now know that that is not totally the case because individuals suffering from exertional heat stroke can be diaphoretic, aka they can be uh, very, very sweaty, cold and clammy, um, but have all of these other symptoms, including the hyperpyrexia or super high body temperature and altered mental status, and they indeed can be having right a exertional heat stroke. And this is typically seen in younger individuals, especially athletes that are out there, right? They are training hard or individuals that are working outside um, in the hot environment, and they can have all of these features, the altered mental status, the high body temperature, and can be sweating and it can still have a heat stroke. So just because somebody is sweaty, um, that does not mean that they are not having heat stroke. And all of these individuals need to be in a hospital environment as soon as possible. And so what you're going to do for them until they get to that hospital, you're going to remove them from the heat or whatever environment that is uh, where they suffered this complication, going to get them to a cooler place. You are going to make sure that they can breathe safely. Uh, if you can, turn them onto their side so that they do not um, sort of aspirate or have material from their stomach or other material that goes down the wrong wind, goes down their windpipe because that can cause complications. You're going to watch their breathing. You are going to immerse them as quickly as possible into cold water, ideally an ice bath, because that's what we do in the emergency department, because the sooner we get that body temperature down, the more likely this individual is to have a good outcome. Um, but you got to get them to the hospital where we would implement uh, these measures to reduce their body temperature, cold water immersion. Um, and actually, literally, ladies and gentlemen, this is dunking them into an ice bath, right? To really try to get that temperature under control as quickly um, and as safely as possible. But they need to be in the emergency department because these individuals require um, basically intensive unit, intensive care unit uh, type of care, right? They are at the, and when we talk about the severity of these heat related illnesses, these are the individuals that have. Uh, those unfortunate outcomes with serious morbidity and if not mortality, right, they die. And so that's why they need to get that urgent, emergent attention. And so one thing I will also say about these illnesses is that this is on a spectrum, ladies and gentlemen, right, from mild to severe, and it is also on a continuum. We cannot always, right, um, distinguish these illnesses because it is on a continuum. An individual can have some signs of what looks like a mild uh, heat-related illness, right? Such as the miliaria rubra or that heat rash, 
at the same time, they can be having a heat stroke. It can be very difficult to tell the difference, um, let's say, between exercise-associated collapse and heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And that is why if an individual is worrying you, if they look confused and out of it, um, don't make the diagnosis yourself, right? Get that individual to a setting where they can be seen by a medical professional um, so that they can be treated and make sure that they are safe. Um, because even for us in the emergency department, in the medical community, it can be difficult to tell the difference between these illnesses. And so that's why when in doubt, the safest thing is to get to your nearest emergency department um, to be evaluated. And I would even make the argument to call 911, right, so that they can implement some of these measures we talked about to cool the body, to make sure that a person is safe, that they can breathe adequately, that they do not need any interventions on the way to the hospital. That is the safest thing. Now, as we begin to conclude, I just want to give some tips on how we can protect ourselves um, in this era, right? In this time uh, from these heat-related illnesses. And essentially, it is really to capitalize on what our bodies are doing each and every day, right? And trying to deal with these illnesses. And so one thing that we can definitely do is try to be mindful of what's going on in our environment, right? Um, that day where the heat index is pretty high and the although it's 80 degrees out, it's going to feel like 117 degrees because of that humidity. You should try to avoid being outdoors, especially if you have any underlying conditions, especially if you're taking prescribed medications, which we know can sort of alter the way that your body deals with uh, these environments. We should really consider staying home. If you are an athlete or if you work outdoors, right, listen to those heat advisories and really try to alter your activities um, to minimize being out there in that environment. And also, right, we're going to take measures to protect ourselves. So if you really have to be out there, um, loose fitting, um, light colored clothing will help uh, help you regulate your body temperature better. Um, a lot of specialty clothing nowadays that actually wicks moisture away from your body, right? So that you can take advantage of that evaporative cooling, even with your uh, clothing on. Um, we have these garments that are available that can do that for you. And so I really recommend investing in that, especially if you have to be out there, as we said, working in these environments. Um, and you even have uh, uh, clothing that you can, right, cover your skin. We want to protect from heat rashes and sort of um, uh, heat, heat burn or, or sunburn um, for that matter. And so there are garments out there that while keeping your skin covered, again, will allow you to be able to stay cool um, and have a more regulated body temperature in this environment. We definitely need to stay hydrated, ladies and gentlemen. So drinking plenty of fluids, especially on those days where right, we know it's going to be super hot outside. Um, again, the only way we can take uh, advantage of evaporative cooling is if our body has the fluid to evaporate, right? So we need to increase our intake of fluids, especially water. A lot of sugary beverages can actually do the opposite and dehydrate us to a degree. Um, and if you are going to be taking any sugary beverages, I would recommend uh, sports drinks because they do have electrolytes that can help um, with your fluid balance, maintain that fluid balance a little bit better. Um, and so anything with electrolytes in it, um, including things like coconut water might help. Um, but you definitely want to increase your fluid t intake um, around these times. Right. With the high ambient temperatures, we really need to be careful 
out there um, when it comes to recreational drug use and alcohol use, um, because not only can that alter our decision making and our behavior, right? Um, it is hard to be cognizant of the heat index when you're intoxicated. So um, we need to be mindful of what's happening in the environment and refrain from using substances um, on these really hot days. And I'll, I'll tell you, right, there is evidence to back this up. We have to be careful um, because there is a famous study done years ago that actually showed an increase in deaths related to cocaine use, um, especially when the ambient temperatures were high. So even just a seemingly mild increase in the ambient temperature um, out there, right? And using these substances can definitely increase the risk of suffering a heat-related emergency and complication uh, related to that. Uh, also, for the very young and the very old, right, we need to be mindful that these individuals might not be able to implement some of the behavioral changes that are necessary to safeguard ourselves from increased temperature in the environment. And so if you have an elderly loved one that lives alone, right, having a plan to check on that person, make sure that their air conditioning is functioning appropriately, um, that they can cool themselves adequately. And if they can't, that you can get them to a place where they can be cooled, whether it is to um, your home or to another family member's home or to a cooling shelter, which are available um, in cities nationwide. Uh, definitely we want to do that. And one of the things that we've noted uh, with the recent crisis in the, the Pacific Northwest was that uh, the population significantly affected, the populations that had right death uh, included the elderly and included individuals that lived alone and that were unable to cool themselves. Maybe their air conditioning malfunctioned or they couldn't make it to a cooling shelter, right? These are the individuals we really got to look out for. And obviously, with that said, the super young, you know, young children, babies, um, we have to be mindful of what's going on around us. If your air condition malfunctioned, we got to get you to a cooling shelter. And um, pretty sure, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in New York City, we are very fortunate to have the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and NewYorkCity.gov, where you can go and find out where the nearest cooling shelter is. Uh, near you. But also, ladies and gentlemen, this is the information age, right? Even on your smartphone, you can pull up that information to find out where the nearest uh, cooling area is or cooling shelter is near you, regardless of where you are in this country. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for Health in Harlem. I just want to say be safe out there during these times because um, it is hot <laughs> and it's only going to get hotter for the next few weeks. And so we really need to be mindful of what is happening around us. And again, right, this is the, the purpose of this program is to empower you so that we can avoid all of this stuff altogether. And so I'm hoping that this will help you as we go forward. Um, I do want you to enjoy the summer. I do want everybody to enjoy being outdoors, enjoy their time with family and friends. But at the same time, we need you to do so safely. And so that's the purpose of this program. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, this show is as usual, dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.